On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Fish's Fellini Days. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter, and in spirit, Tom Corcoran, as we talk about Fish's Fellini Days. gentlemen Fellini days this is for me a fascinating album in that up until I don't know six eight weeks ago I had never heard it I'd never owned it Mm -hmm. didn't know anything about it and as we were you know coming to this part of the catalog I'm like well guess I'd better get this so I don't know if you guys recall but I had I had purchased a big uh, a big lot of merchandise from Fish. So I got Weltschmerz on both um, CD and vinyl. I got the Super Duper Deluxe Edition of A Feast of Consequences. And I got the remastered edition of this particular album. And I'm so happy I did because, and Paul, as, as you know from your remastered edition of, I believe it was Rain Gods, Mm-hmm. Fish has extensive liner notes outlining, you know, the 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 happenings of, of Fish World in and around the making of whatever album. So I put this in, and I didn't read the, the liner notes for for quite some time. I just kind of listened to it, and and initially I was a little taken aback by some of the, shall I say, jarring sounds that are coming out of the speakers at me. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't the the smooth production that we've experienced over the last couple of fish albums and I was like well that's kind of weird but you know the the album actually germinated in my brain fairly quickly and and I I found myself drawn to certain things and I was I was kind of getting into it and some of the jarring guitar tones and everything else started to make a little bit of sense and then I read the liner notes. And by that point, I was I was well down the road to really appreciating this album, but the liner notes just fried my brain. Now, Ken, you found in in all places, it was an, an Amazon review of this record that basically outlined yes, I did. all of this yes. stuff very succinctly. But but what amazed me, and, and when you read Fish's words, while this album was being made, his marriage was breaking up. He was having a bit of an affair. His wife, unbeknownst to him at the time, was having a, an affair. They were trying to sell the the big manor house and unsuccessfully doing so while dealing with all of the aforementioned you know, financial woes. And, and there were a couple of little short tours in there. His wife was going back and forth to Berlin. I mean, it's just a complete and 
utter shit show. And in mm. the middle of all of this, he ends up having to get rid of, and I forget if he had to sell it or, or whatever, all the equipment in his studio. And so, really, yeah. So there's there's actually a, a reason why this album sounds the way it did, in that he basically had to sort of scrape together whatever he could in terms of equipment and put it into his studio to record this record. And and so, I mean, it's just it's amazing. And when you start to to think about some of the um, some of the songs on here. So Fellini and Clock Move Sideways being probably the most obvious examples, they are, it's, it's amazing that Fish was able to actually write and record this record. Oh, and I guess, by the way, his band members kept changing and, and Wesley was living in Florida. And so, I mean, it just, everything about this record, there's, there's no logical reason why it was actually made, but given that context and given the the meaning behind some of these songs, I am full blown hundred percent on board with this record. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Now, I'm impressed. I'm sold. Personally, um, for me, this did not achieve the heights of Rain Gods with Zippos, but I am still in a fish high. This is still the peak. I got very juiced from the last one. I got a little bit juiced from this one. And I I really like Wesley and and I really like John Young. We 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 haven't come across John John Young by name in this podcast. Right. But this is this is um one of his really notable contributions to the world of Prague and he is the leader of Life Signs which we know currently as, as a band with Dave Bainbridge and some, yeah. some, some very inspired musicians. And he, he, he does some really great work. Uh, so um, if you can't write with Steven Wilson, or if you, if, if you, you know, just mix it up in principle, then, then what a great cast of characters that, that, he, that he assembled. Yeah, he really, really did. And, you know, I, I think... You know, listening to this, and, and it could just be the, the tones, but, I mean, John Wesley seems to be somehow the driving force behind this record. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, there's there's so much of John everywhere, and it's, I mean, some of the quirky tones aside, I think it's really tasteful stuff. If I could, would you guys be willing to indulge me in, in reading a, a lengthy bit of the liner notes to sort of set the stage for what Fellini days actually mean. Hmm. I'm certainly willing. Yep. And it's, it's, it starts out like when I started reading this, you'll understand exactly why I was so gobsmacked in the very beginning. I felt like an actor walking out onto an Igmar Bergman movie set, a cobbled Copenhagen square surrounded by flaming autumnal cherry trees underneath gray stone buildings that gleamed in the warm mid-morning sunshine. The lighting was perfect. It was September 1999. I had a day off in Denmark and and I had unusually woken up early in my bunk on the tour bus with a mission. I wanted to see the latest Star Wars movie, The Phantom Menace. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but on this day off, I wanted to go to the cinema, and that was the movie I wanted to see. I stepped off the bus, not knowing where I was in the city, and wandered off in search of a film. I had no sooner walked a couple of hundred meters when I turned a corner to arrive in front of an Art Deco cinema with the billboard showing Phantom Menace in the original English version. version. At the box office, I found that the first screening of the day was at 11 in 10 minutes' time. So I'm I am- sorry, did, did, did you say something about a movie about an English virgin? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Carry on. So I ambled into what was an empty theater that could have held 700 or 50, 750 or so people in the plush velvet seats, surrounded by red and gold opulence. I chose to plant myself directly in the middle of the auditorium, stretched my legs out, and I remember thinking at the time that this is what it must be like when Michael Jackson goes to the movies. An entire theater shut down just for him. The silence was epic until broken by the sound of opening doors accompanied by by jabbering kids' voices. I could hear them taking their seats in the row directly behind me, still jabbering, with the voices of teachers bringing them under a modicum of control. I turned around to discover around 12 handicapped kids and their helpers all becoming very excited and agitated at the prospect of the film. I wasn't looking forward to a constant interruption from behind me, with the only solution being to change seats. I got caught in a dilemma. If I move, will it be taken as, quote, I don't want to be next to you, end quote, risking embarrassment? Or do I sit there and accept it as it is and avoid a personal guilt trip? I chose to stay where I was, and I was glad I did. Rather than talking through the movie, the kids went absolutely mouse quiet, enthralled by what they were seeing, staring with open mouths at the screen. The entire movie experience was actually heightened, as every time there was a piece of drama or serious eye candy on screen, the kids oohed and awed in wonderment. When the film finished, I turned around and we all smiled at each other. I passed the box office to find another English original film on that night in one of the smaller theaters in the complex. I phoned my best friend and production manager, Yada, and asked if he wanted to go to the pictures later. He agreed, and I bought the last two tickets for what seemed to be a science fiction movie called The Matrix. Ah. Now, he goes, um. on, he goes on to explain a number of other experiences that happened that day. These wonderful coincidences where things just sort of worked out perfectly. He and Yada decide to go out to dinner before the movie, and the first movie they go to just isn't quite what they're looking for, so they get up and leave, and they stumble upon the exact perfect restaurant, and they have a wonderful meal. Um, I don't know if they ever get to the movie or not, but at one point they wind up in an Irish pub that Yada knows, and Fish ends up having a very engaging conversation with a couple of actors as he was thinking about heavily about movies at the time, which is how all this comes together. And, and he then goes on to talk about how he had been developing a, 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 a very serious appreciation of Fellini's films and how the, the films that he was talking about with, with Fellini were not really about anything particular but that Fellini had a way of capturing and illuminating the magic in everyday events. 
Now, the closest I've ever came to this was when I was uh, when I discovered what a friend to me described as trail magic. This was, and I've probably told this story on the podcast before, but I'll tell it again quickly here. The first time I ever went hiking in my life, I was driving north through New Hampshire to a bed and breakfast that I wanted to stay at because it was purportedly haunted. Mm. And there's a there's a large park that is along the interstate driving north through New Hampshire. And driving through it, I thought, this is really a nice place. And on the way back, I had nothing to do. And it was a Sunday. I didn't have to be in Boston until, you know, the next morning. So I had plenty of time on my hands. And I just randomly pulled off into a parking lot in this in this park and started hiking on this trail. Had no idea where I was going, but I was happy that I was following the trail. And it was leading me up the side of a mountain. A, a little bit into this, I started to see signs for, I believe it was called the Lonesome Lake, and you see enough signs for the Lonesome Lake, and you want to see the Lonesome Lake, even though apparently it's at the top of this, you know, mountain. As I kept going up, and it was May, it was Mother's Day, I remember it vividly. I felt terrible that I was, you know, hiking around New Hampshire on Mother's Day, when my wife was at home with the, with the children. And, you know, I, I had no cell service, so I was off the grid, and life was fantastic. And as I kept going up this mountain, I walked into snow. And I'm like, this is spectacular. And the higher I went, by the time I found the Lonesome Lake, I was literally in knee-deep snow. It was utterly wow. spectacular. Wow. The Lonesome Lake was half frozen. It was absolutely beautiful. And I thought, this day can't possibly get any better. And as I walked back down to the car and just reveling in the, the experience that I had, as I got close to the parking lot, I started to hear music, and I thought, well, this is odd, and I shit you not, I got back into the parking lot, there were two cars in the parking lot, mine, and this other car that was parked three or four spaces away, and standing next to said car, leaning against it, was a man playing a violin. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I, why he was standing in the parking lot playing the violin, I don't know. But let me tell you, it really just added that little bit of magic to the whole thing. And and I was telling the story to a a, a, a very granola friend of mine at work the, the following week. And he said, oh, that's trail magic right there. And I, I have had other moments of trail magic. Um, not quite as magical as that, but... So I, I can certainly appreciate what um, what that means. So <laughs> Fish, you know, described a day like this as as a Fellini day. As he was going through all these trials and tribulations in this time period and trying to write, you know, these these songs while all this is going on around him, he he sort of continually found himself in these situations where he would recognize the Fellininess of a particular moment. <laughs> and be able to find joy in that. And so the title itself becomes a powerful aspect of this music. And when he uses it repeatedly throughout as a lyric, it it even adds something to the whole thing. So that's sort of my, my preamble into Fellini Days and why I'm so in love with it at this mm. point. That's amazing. I think you just pulled me across the finish line with, with Fellini Days, Joe, because... <laughs> 
I that describes like my reaction to to this record overall. Like you, I had not listened to it ever prior to preparing for this. And I'm extremely thankful that we had multiple weeks to listen to it. I couldn't possibly imagine, just as when I picked up Rain Gods and Zippos, I couldn't possibly think it could be anywhere close to as good as Sunsets on Empire. I picked this up and I said, surely there can't be three in a row. And <laughs> and when I first listened to it, I was like, ah, here, here it is. This is the one that's going to fall short. And yet somehow track by track i was like well okay i'll listen to that one again <laughs> see what i think and and over the course of uh, the first couple of listens i couldn't understand why i like it so much and i think it is simply that there, there is plenty on here to complain about plenty on here to say oh this is not good and this is a pain in the ass but there is a magical thing that goes on in every single one of these tracks that you just find yourself grabbing onto. And it, it is a, it is a fantastic record. It is, and it's, it, it is magical in some strange way. I love it. Yeah. Spoiler alert. If you haven't listened to head, he doesn't make it four in a row. <laughs> wow. Well, Joe, you already paved the way for this Amazon review. So I, I would like to give Stephen Sly his due by reading this into the record. Absolutely. Fish, a strong album that documents the breakup of his marriage by Amazon user Stephen Sly, S-L-Y. Reviewed in the nut in the United States on February 28th, 2007. More record company problems plague Fish as he ends up releasing this one independently on his own Chocolate Frog record label. So this is the debut of Chocolate Frog. It is. On this one, Fish teams up with John Wesley as his main writing partner and guitarist. Wesley... Should be no stranger to Marillion fans. He was the band's gear tech for years and has also put out several solo albums of mostly singer-songwriter type material. He has opened for Marillion on numerous tours, of which we have seen in the flesh. Mm -hmm. And he also currently a touring member of Porcupine Tree as of 2007. He certainly was. Wesley's songwriting and guitar style contributes significantly to the album. And although this is not Fish's best, I think it, is a solid album. The album starts and ends with the sound of film running through a projector and seems to loosely focus around the film style of acclaimed director Federico Fellini. Fellini's voice can also be heard in the background of several of the tracks. Another big influence on this album was the fact that Fish's marriage of many, many years had fallen apart between this and the last album, Long Cold Dip, Fog Dancing, and Obligatory Ballad all deal with the breakup in various ways, finding Fish in both a reflective and vindictive mood. The song Our Smile appears to describe an affair that the lyrics indicate may have taken place before the ending of the marriage. This is pure speculation on my part, but that is the way the song comes across to me. The song Tiki Four 
takes the now single fish back to his hedonistic days of hanging out all night with some tr truly unique characters while the good citizens are lying asleep in their bed. The three longer tracks on the album are all solid. The opener 3D clocks in close to 10 minutes and sets the tone for the rest of the album. The politically tinged Pilgrim's Address sees Fish in all, all his caustic glory writing an open letter to the president. The finale, Clock Moves Sideways, is a strong way to end the album. Uh, he says he has not listened to this disc in a while and it held up. So this was released in 2001 and this review was in 2007. I, I like the fact that there were six years to marinate there. <laughs> he closes out. This is a very good album from Fish. And that is a great segue to the timeline of progressive rock. What was going on um, from 1999? Rain Gods with the Zippos to 2001 um when this came out and it, it it's all the new kids it's all, it's all the the hip and cool version of prog you'll see names like spock's beard porcupine tree liquid tension experiment mr bungle is on their third album yes is doing the latter neil morse goes solo opeth uh dream theater merillion.com the Flower Kings, all pretty amazing stuff happening in 1999. And then we jump over to 2000. Uh, Pink Floyd does, is there anybody out there? The Wall Live, uh, Glass Hammer. Th this is five or six albums before John Davidson gets involved. King Crimson again, Spock's Beard, Flower Kings. Oh, Getty Lee, my favorite headache. We've got some tool in here, considered Prague even roger hodson uh so this this paves the way for what fish may have been listening to but it was such it's such an odd time and who knows what kind of music fish may have been spinning uh as he created this this shall we call it a a strained masterpiece or or, or, or a barely masterpiece yeah, you know, I, I would I would agree with that. I, I would not have agreed with that two weeks ago, maybe. But like Paul said, I mean, when we did Sunsets, I thought, well, nothing's going to beat Sunsets. And then Rain Gods actually, you know, came close, maybe was as good, maybe was better. And again, I didn't think Fellini was going to be anywhere close to that. But it turns out, you know, for all of its flaws, it is, it, it's a very moving album. So... Yeah, fish is fish is really hitting on all cylinders here, and it's interesting to note that it does not even appear on the timeline of progressive rock. So it does not. <laughs> That's so, the so funny. The, the curators of Prague have deemed Fellini days not worthy, which I disagree wholeheartedly. Yeah, I, I also I, I think it's interesting to note that there was also another Amazon reviewer named Gordon Kelly, who gave Fellini days two stars. And interestingly, use a very important choice of words in his description. Actually, said the magic is gone. Oh, which is, wow! Which is the polar opposite of everything we talked about just a few moments ago. It is so, no trail magic for uh, Mr. Kelly. Yeah, I'm a big big fan. So particulars, as Ken mentioned, Fellini days, and this was interesting. It has two release dates according to the wikis. 
2nd May 2001 for the mail order, and 13th of August 2001 for the retail. It was produced by Elliot Ness and released on the label Chocolate Frog Records, or potentially Snapper Music, depending on, I suppose, where you were. If you talk about just the, the actual album itself and not all the bonus tracks, lead vocals are Fish, Guitars, John Wesley, Keyboards, John Young, Bass, Steve Vances, Drums, Dave Stewart. Um, backing vocals by Susie Webb and Zoe Nicholas. And percussion by Dave Haswell. The track listing in the main sequence is 3D, So Fellini, Tiki 4, Our Smile, Long Cold Day, Dancing in Fog, Obligatory Ballad, The Pilgrim's Address, and Clock Moves Sideways. Fellini Days is Fish's seventh solo studio album since leaving Marillion in 1988, his first since Rain Gods with Zippos in 1999, and the first on his own label, Chocolate Frog Records. Quote, Having long ago cast into exile the ghosts of prog rock, Fish ush ushers guitars and female singers to the fore, end quote, observed classic rock. Quote, and blends his trademark poetry into the spacious but claustrophobic, almost um, Waitsian 3D, the blues rock weight of Long Cold Day and the gathering dramas of Tiki Four, The Pilgrim's Address, mm. and the slowly creeping clock moves sideways, end quote. So, you know, I, I could spend probably 10 minutes taking umbrage with, with that quote from Classic Rock, but I will choose to not do that <laughs> <laughs> simply because I'm in too good of a mood to talk about this record, to worry about why someone um, back in the day didn't necessarily understand, um, you know, what was going on here. Or, I, I mean, how can you say exiling the ghost of prog rock? And part of that is bringing female singers to the fore. I mean, uh, anyway, be that as it may. I mean, there are Marillion albums with female singers. I mean, where has this person been? Well, there are. There, there's a a particular Pink Floyd track that comes to mind that is only sung by a female. Amen. There's four tracks that are over seven minutes long. There are. It's it's is really. That it, it it's funny when I looked at when I looked at the the wikis for this, and it always lists the the track. The album itself is 57 minutes. It doesn't yeah. seem like 57 minutes to me. This is this is almost a perfect workout album. I've worked out a lot listening to this and it, it's it's like the perfect length. And mm. it, it and it does go right by, go right by you. But I don't, you know, I it doesn't seem like he's Cast into exile, the ghost of prog rock. When he opens up with a nine-minute and eleven-minute track, and, uh, yeah, I think I think he's bringing the ghosts, uh, you know, back to the yeah. forefront. Yeah, I read that simply because that's what's on the the opening yeah. section of the wikis, and that's what we do. But I disagree with it wholeheartedly. You know, I think that leads us right into 3D, which is the opening track, and you know, it as Paul you mentioned, it's it's a nine-minute track. It's interesting, right? Because it starts out with the with the the sound of the movie projector. And and it's fascinating because literally the sound of the movie projector plays through the entire album. Sometimes yes. you have Fellini in there or not. 
you know, we'll get to a to a point later on the album where it becomes a, a bit distracting. But in terms of of lending a certain character to this record, I think it it does it in surprisingly effective fashion. I don't think it's a great idea. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how long it takes you for it to become distracting, but for me, it's about 12 seconds. I mean, personally, I I, I think he could have accomplished the same and keeping it by keeping it out of the the mix as much as he did. But but again, it's one of the things that I love about the album. There's so many things on here that makes me go, nah, that's not a good idea. And yet it doesn't bother me at all. Somehow. My notes on 3D, right out of the gate, we sort of get a feel for, hey, John Wesley's here and John Wesley is 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 pulling his weight here. I think the the guitar in the chorus is absolutely tasty. An interesting thing, and I'm going to say, I wish Tom was here because I have I have a, a provocative statement that I'm going to make with regards to the vocals in the chorus for 3D. And I originally was going to make this comment on A Feast of Consequences because I actually listened to that album first. And Fish does the same sort of thing there. But when when Fish start and I was surprised when I heard it here on Fellini Days, when Fish starts singing the chorus and he drops his voice into that mode, it evoked for me, and I haven't gone back and listened to it to check if that's really the case, but it made me think of when we were listening to Nostradamus by Judas Priest. Hmm. And I was like, weird that Fish is sounding a little like Rob Halford, but that's what I thought. And that's what I still think. So, you know, take that for what it is. In the first guitar solo, I love the way, and I don't even know how exactly they achieve it, but at the end of that guitar solo, there's this sort of, I'm assuming it's some sort of a multi-instrumental swell that literally sounds like a plane landing. It's very, very cool. And and then the guitar tone overall is pretty harsh, right? Yes. But like after I kind of got my brain around the song, I kind of like that harshness. It kind of works for me a little bit. And and this song just doesn't end. It just keeps on going. And and what really I find amazing is even despite that harsh guitar tone, the outro solo is almost jubilant, which is I, I think it's a it's a marvelous piece of work by John Wesley to be able to sort of pull that off. I remember the first time I listened to this song and the guitars just sort of, you know, started like creeping in and just like completely taking over the song. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, the hell is going on? Like, and, and I honestly couldn't, I couldn't decide at first whether I liked it. I thought this is like so unruly. And then like, it just sort of like, like cuts out. And the guitar just like fully goes in. And then there's like like Ty Taborish like riffs in there a little bit that Yeah. That just yeah. and and now, you know, after a few listens, it's just like I mean, the tone is just not great, but it the way the whole thing comes together, like you said, Joe, just never ends. It's like a four minute outro of guitars and vocals and and it is just, it just like swirls all around you. 
and it 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 really takes you it i mean to say that it picks you up and begins to to you know prepare you for what you're about to hear mm-hmm. is is probably an understatement but i i love it yeah i i will say that john wesley's guitar parts are unedited and and one good contrast is imagine if the Marillion crew, the current crew, ha- ha- had their way with this, um, the, the guitar would come in and then they'd say, Rothers, chill out, and then you'd be a highlighting the keyboard. I mean, you know, there, there's always a dialogue in a well-established bands where people have their turf. Right. And this, this whole mm. album is just John Wesley turf. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, there, there's not enough necessarily for my tastes of... The bass having something to say and the keyboards having something to say. This is very much John Wesley has something to say. I, and I hmm. think, Ken, I think that is a an incredibly fair point. And, but at the same time, I'm okay with it because I'm loving what John is doing on yes, this record. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, he probably had more input here than with Porcupine Tree. I'm sure he probably did. Yeah, I would think so. That takes us into So Fellini. So Fellini was the the <sighs> the first earworm that I got, right? right? That that chorus just gets in your head and won't go away. Yeah. It seems to be a good live track too. I I, I caught a version of this online. Yeah. And the crowd the crowd eats it up and they sing along. They do. It's it's it, it's sort of designed for that in in a certain respect, but you know it's one of those things where once you sort of get past the chorus earworm and you listen to the rest of it, you're kind of like, oh, I see what he, oh, oh, uh. and then when you read the whole thing and you realize, so imagine Fish has an affair. He writes a song about it and records it while his marriage is still falling apart around him. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and and when you when you read the lyrics to So Fellini in in this context and you understand what the the term Fellini means to fish, it it makes so much sense and you almost feel bad like, you know, if if you were to find out that, you know, one of your best friends was fooling around on his wife and it's like you know, I don't need to know that. That you know, that puts me in an awkward <laughs> position. Right, right, right. But um, you know, that being aside, the fish establishes this, or I should say, Wesley establishes this groove, and fish like lays these the 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 vo- the verses are like has this sort of slinky, you know, vocal delivery, which is you know, I it feels dirty, but it feels good at the same time, right? Um, absolutely love it. And then I was listening, I was, I was listening in headphones last night and I hadn't, you know, when you put on headphones, obviously you hear other things and there's something going on in the right (laughs) channel that I I could only describe as farty keyboard sounds. I'm not exactly (laughs) sure what the hell that is, but I was like, what the hell's that? And it, that was very distracting. And, and and then of course I get you know the 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 sort of seventeen year old inside of me gets a little giddy when I hear what I describe as the mind crime chorus 
section at the end. Yeah. Yes, let's, sir. Yes, sir. Right like, in my notes. Right in my notes. Help me out, guys. Which track is it? Sweet Sister Mary. It reminds. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, the, it's the Sweet Sister Mary Choir. Yeah, my, my, okay. Mind Crime. The the side two opener, Sweet Sister Mary, sounds very much like this because they're utilizing the uh, what the the A minor with the raised fourth thing going on that Lydian thing, something like that. It's amazing, and 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 plus plus choral, you know, synthesized choral. Scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 the music kind of breaks down here that it has that same sort of space that Sweet Sister Mary has, and so it was like, oh, I know what this makes me think of. It's very cool. Yeah, I, I don't want to harp on this uh, anymore, so I'm just I'm going to get all of my guitar tone issues out of the way right now. OK, like the guitar lines are so fabulous in this song, but all of the effects are just they're too much. They're all just over the top. It, it's fine. Like I get over it and I love it, but it's just like, come on, guys. Like, you know, who like I, I just I just wonder, like. I don't know. I just don't, I don't get it. Like, I think I commented, like, it's like, you know, you, every, everybody got a pod in the early 2000s. And you Line six, in, baby. Yep. And there was like all these crazy sounds and you're like, oh, this is so much fun. But then like, right. You came back to it literally and you're like, holy shit, turn the phaser down a little bit or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. So, yeah, um, pod hangover. Yeah. And that's rampant for the rest of the album. So I'm just going to get out of the way now. So, um, I, I still love it all, but it's just, come on. But I have to say this one thing. If I were to look at the track listing for Sofalini, and if the, if the writing credits said Dick, Wesley, and Tom Corcoran, it wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> I think this song, like, takes me back to the, all of it takes me back to the, the height of the exotic feeding days. Everything from the, like you said, the verse delivery, the dance, 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 yeah. the lady. Like to me, that's just like, that's mucho. That is from the mucho. early 2000s. You're absolutely like, right. Wow, that's him. That's from the, like, the, or the mid 90s. So, right. And so, 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 our, just, just for any new Palaver listeners, I, I know we pick up 10 listeners a week or whatnot, but um, Tom Corcoran from this very, podcast was a big fish fan during this period when did he actually see fish in southern california ken i'm glad you brought that up because i think fish himself answers the question wow he talks about his his north american tour during this time period that he was recording this record and i quote from the liner notes the Troubadour in L.A. was a very different bag, and playing on stage with my old friend Steve Lukather was a moment in itself. As there were so many singers and only a small backstage area, I spent most of the show sitting at the bar with Steve, drinking tequila, waiting on my cue, and getting off on the band. So, it, I mean, did did Tom see him play with Steve Lukather? Are you serious? I don't, that that yeah. sounds like some kind of charity event or award show or something. I, I, that doesn't make sense because Tom saw a full-on fish show, I think two sets or something. I wanted to say that it was the Sunsets on Empire tour that he saw. I don't know. Because it, 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 was, it was aligned in the same tour that Marillion was touring, This Strange Engine, I think. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, 
Well, still, I saw the Troubadour in L.A. and I got all excited. And Steve that's, Lukather, who, yeah. you know, that sounds pretty cool. Shit, yeah. Did Tom interview Luke for uh, for the documentary? I believe Steve's in there, yeah. Yeah, I thought he did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Fellini's a highlight for me. So I mean, how can it not be? Exactly. And Paul, I think you're these sort of production limitations and dubious decisions it's still a really enjoyable album and and that it can overcome that is quite surprising to me now on the on when he was on the same tour in on the US west coast is the the inspiration for Tiki 4 he relays a story of agreeing to go to some fan club event in San Diego meeting some people and blithely agreeing to drive off with them in the night to somebody's house um, in the suburbs of San Diego that was named Tiki 4. It was the fourth house on the street, and it had a Hawaiian-themed bar. And apparently there was a bathroom where the toilet was covered in synthetic spider webs and lit with a UV light. And apparently they sat around and they drank drinks with swizzle sticks with little monkeys on them and apparently they smoked some pot and listened to some pink floyd and had a hell of a night (laughs) this is all in the liner notes yes these are the details you get when you drop 50 bucks on us on a special edition from fish (laughs) is this the eight thousand word from fish himself liner note yeah it's one of those things it's it's literally pages it's amazing Fish, uh, Derek, we need an extra page of, uh, okay, uh, well, we'll we'll say uh, swizzle sticks with monkeys on them (laughs) and spider webs and black lights. But but when you listen, you know, when you listen to the lyrics, it just it you're like, oh, that, you know, it 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 cracks me up. Can it, it it reminds me of way back when when I moved to Texas and um I wrote probably the second or third best song I ever wrote called Martin. And love it. it love it. It it had a very ambiguous mm-hmm. uh ambiguous like. chorus and, and one day you were kind of taken up with it and, and you had proposed, you know, several theories as to what Martin could actually be about when in actuality it was really about me being lost in Fort Worth looking for Martin Street and and the chorus ah, popped ah, into my head ah, as I, I was that. stressing out doing oh, it. Oh, looking for Martin. Yeah. <laughs> love that story. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and so so it's it's the same sort of thing here. It, like a lot of the mystique kind of evaporates, but it's it it doesn't really take anything away from it. And and quite frankly, you know, there, there are some peculiarities here. I, and, and here again, and I, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but A, John Wesley makes this song. Absolutely, 100%. Love everything he's doing. Two, when I'm reading the lyrics, and let me get to the line so I read it properly. So, Fellini, Tiki Four. Um... My ties at the bar, she only sees Charlie at weekends. For whatever reason, Charlie is not capitalized in the lyrics. Other words are capitalized in the lyrics, but not Charlie. No idea what that means. I'm merely pointing it out. Mm -hmm. There is another line here that I absolutely love. 
and the darkness zips up the city like a body bag. Yeah. Man, that is, that's classic fish. I absolutely love that. And and I used to focus just on, on that first line, but then I focused on the line after it. And the darkness zips up the city like a body bag. The good citizens are lying asleep in their beds, dreaming of the day ahead. Meanwhile, we're back in Tiki 4. Now, a couple different things. One, apparently that line arises from the fact that when Fish got into the car with these people to drive out to Tiki 4, it was right around twilight. So it was getting dark, makes perfect sense. However, I have also recently, on my semi-nightly walks, been listening to Marillion's Fear a lot. Hmm. And this idea of the rock star out partying while all the quote-unquote normal people are at home doing normal things resonates very strongly of the leavers with me. Hmm. I'm, hmm. Not su- I'm not suggesting that they're connected in any way, shape, or form. I'm merely saying that the, the messages and the way they're delivered resonate closely with each other in my brain. And then the last thing that I have, there's there's another line near the uh, middle end of the song where he, and I don't exactly know what you would describe it in terms of a section, but he goes off, Renee is curled up on the sofa, Judy scratches away at her scars, loud lines that were only a whisper, too weak for the angels to hear, but she's proud, she's got the respect of her mother. The way that Fish delivers that line, got the respect of her mother, just screams Jane's addiction to me for some reason. Oh, neat. Hmm. So, yeah, Tiki 4. I think it's a blast. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. And, you know, here again, you've got this album where three songs out of the gate, bam, 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 really strong. It's really yeah. quite impressive. Yeah, you're digging it. Um, I, I will say that... Um Two things. One of the, you know, this kind of maybe goes back to some of that recording stuff that you were talking about at the top of the show, Joe. Yep. Every time I listen to this song, I was constructing two new beds out of Ikea from Ikea that I purchased from my young adult sons, which is a bad (laughs) sign that (laughs) I should be kicking them out of my house and I'm building them beds. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, I listened to this, you know, as I was, you know, doing that and like exercising. Every time I listen to this song, I'm I'm amazed at the um, inaccuracies of the vocal line. Like, yeah, uh, it, it really has the feeling of of you know spontaneity. I, I just I just think it's interesting and it, it's good to call out. It's 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 not that it's bad. It's just that you notice it, right? It's yeah. it's not sung perfectly. The other thing is the verse is hauntingly like Tom Petty's Wildflowers. Really? The, the the vocal line that he has. Yeah. Huh. Check check that out next time you're listening. I hadn't thought to, of that. I'm not very familiar with Tom Petty's wall, uh, Wildflowers. but Well, I've had the fortunate or unfortunate, depending on your point of view, opportunity to sing it about 100 times. And so... Um, there you go. The melody is is there. Um, it's just pretty pretty interesting sort of uh, thing. But uh, And then I had a bunch of notes about... The shitty guitar tone, which I promised I wouldn't talk about. <laughs> we'll call Fellini Days the masterpiece, but for the shitty guitar tone. I'll tell you what, the other thing I wrote in there is that it is 
it, it, I mean, it's an, it's a truly an example, this album to me of songs and an album where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Because like, that's a perfect example, that song. Like, if you just listen to the vocal line, you're like, nah, he's kind of ripping off Tom Petty and nah, he should have went back and sang it again, at least a couple spots. And it's not great. The guitar tone is a disaster, but yeah, I love the song. Yeah. It's great. And I get excited every time it comes on. It's fantastic. Why do I feel some kind of parallel with Roger Walter at Waters Ra- Radio Chaos? I'm not familiar enough with Radio Chaos, so I can't, I can't comment. Same. Yeah, I barely know it, too. I have it. I should probably listen to it, but I have it. In some spaces, just conceptually and um, maybe tempo-wise and, 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 and just maybe the production, the, the way the sounds are just kind of abstractly thrown about or thrown about like abstract art you know there is kind of a a dreamy reverbed out theme to some of the production should we go on to our smile indeed yeah our smile i love love the way it starts it just it's perfect i I just love that hook I, i i don't know if wesley wrote that melody but it's just it's just a wonderful way to start it's it's almost rothery esque well and and it's funny you should say that because i think that the the connection I drew between Tiki, the, some of the lyrics in Tiki 4 and the Leavers also come about from the guitar tone here because it sounds very Rothery, and it sounds like something Rothery has done on Fear specifically. Um, I, believe, I believe he did it on Sounds That Can't Be Made as well, but I've been listening to Fear a lot, so that's what's on my brain. But I agree you know, 100% with, with that. It's almost like if what would have happened if Fish had been in Marillion modern day, right? Almost. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, the first note I have here is, says that the guitar sounds very Marillion. This cool. is like, this is, I think the one, the one area or the one instance on this record where other people get a chance to breathe because in the, I guess it's the first part of the, the verses, John does drop out a little bit and you get the, the bass piano drums kind of getting to do their thing a little bit. And maybe it's because you haven't heard them so much that you're like, oh, this is kind of nice. And then John comes back in and sits on top of it. And I think it's, you know, it, I, I think it really works. And I do, um, you know, I like, I like that hook and I like the, uh, the, the choruses that, that derive from that as well. I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those surprising songs. If, if I think about, oh, my, my favorite tracks on this record, I would never think of Our Smile, but when it comes on, I'm very pleased. It could possibly be the most developed and adult song on here. It has a, a very groomed uh, style to it. Yeah. Mature. Yeah, it, it is. It's a little bit more mature than some of the rest. Which may be why I don't like it as much as I like most of the, the other stuff here. Uh, for me, this is a little bit too cliche-ish, a little too contrived. Um, but I will say this, I do like the Marillion feel that you guys are talking about. I totally dig that and, and agree with that. And for me, uh, even though this song might be like forced ranked at the bottom, it's in the perfect spot because like Joe, you said it, like you get a chance to breathe here with this. Yeah. Like for once the guitars are a little under control. Uh, <laughs> the piano is kind of ringing through. It's got this, this, there's, it's just it's a very lovely melody and after those first three 
you know, it's like the first three songs are like 20 minutes. Yeah. It's 20 minutes of, you know, pretty intense and at least fun music. And this is a little bit more laid back and it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice beat. It's a nice beat when you're working out to this album too. I must, I must say. Mm. So, mm. Well, how about this? There is a house, uh, <laughs> there is a song house at the end of Merlion.com that evokes an entirely different genre from the rest of the album. So um, would, you, would you say this is the house of Fellini days? I would have never thought to make that, that comparison, but I think that is a good analogy. It's a good, good. House is like an R&B song with a saxophone, yeah. if I recall. Yeah. And this yeah. isn't quite that over the top. There's no indication that this would require a saxophone, but it, but it is more of a, you know, American pop R&B influence song. Yeah. Yeah. Long, cold day. Yes. You know, now that we had like five minutes where we could just like, you know, let the guitar chill out a little bit, like this fucking riff blows me away. Mm-hmm. Like the whole like, it is, I mean, I totally connect with the guitar. I, every time, I don't even know what the name of the song is. Like every time I would look at something, I would say Long Cold Day. I'd be like, oh, which song is that? And I'd go play it and I'd be like, ah, that one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I honestly don't even know what else is happening in this song because I'm just re- reveling in, in the guitar rhythms and, and, riff my note here says that the guitar is raunchy and i mean that in (laughs) in 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 the most complimentary way i can possibly imagine i absolutely love Mm. it and is it fair to say that you know this might be a manifestation of stephen wilson influence on one john wesley it could be although I, i i don't know that I would go along with that, although I don't know that I have enough knowledge of. Yeah, I don't know either, but it, it just, it sounds, it, it, it reminds me of something that Stephen might do. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so strange. Like, it's so strange to me that, like, I actually was exposed to John Wesley playing acoustic guitar at a Marillion show before I even knew what about Porcupine Tree, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and even after I knew about Porcupine Tree and I knew that John Wesley was in Porcupine Tree, I was convinced it was a different guy. <laughs> well, and, and, and Wesley would have been in Porcupine Tree when we saw them in 07, right? Was that not part of his tenure? Uh, I think it, I think it would have been. I, I just, yeah, I just, I have very little memory of, of that experience. Um, the only thing I sadly, remember of, the only thing I remember of that is we were all like, this band is really good. And in all the, the swag they gave us, there was a little card for Porcupine mm-hmm. Tree. And I made it a point to remember this is a band you've got to pay attention to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I failed paying attention to that. And then my my good buddy, uh, the death-defying Matt Blasick, oh. uh, sent me a couple of CDs. And he said, I don't know if you know these guys, but you should really check them out. And um, and that that was really what I what I got. So the 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 long jagged uh, jigsaw that it took me to put together like who John Wesley is. I'm a I'm a fan. I just don't know that I you know 
I don't know if like is this what he brought to Porcupine Tree or is this what I, Porcupine Tree gave to him? I don't I, know. I, I don't know either. So mm. there are a couple of lyrics here that I find really sort of moving. Sometimes I feel like I'm sailing on a dream boat on wild and heavy seas. I was cast adrift or fallen overboard. I catch my breath and head for shore. I turn around. The ship sails on. Mm. That that imagery, right? And then he goes further on um, in the song. And I still remember sailing on that dream boat on starlit mirrored seas. I hold my breath and I gaze from shore from this empty beach and this pile of clothes. I hit the water, the ship sails on, and he mantras that. Mm. So he's, you know, the, the, the dream boat here presumably is the relationship. And, you know, the mirrored seas is how it was in the beginning when everything is placid and wonderful. And, and but you get caught in that tempest and you end up, you know, getting thrown off the boat. And the ship sails away from you. It's, it's, I find it to be extremely moving in terms of imagery. Mm. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think the outro to this song is absolutely sublime as well. Yeah, there's, there's a really nice complimentary rhythm to the lyrics as well. Like the way that the delivery of the, um, all those lines really complements like the main rhythm of the song. It really all fits together. I don't want to say precise. It's not precise, but it, but it just, it's complimentary. It's really nice. It becomes apparent to me that Fish just wears his heart on his sleeve and he just is who he is and he writes in the moment. And and I, it's almost as if he had no choice. I mean, this is something that some people would just suppress or keep to themselves. But he is who he is. And as soon as he thinks it, it becomes a song. And and he's and, and again he's he's almost documenting the demise of his marriage in real time. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, really right. and, and, and we're gonna get to this when we get to clock move sideways, right? But think about think about the difference in you know, fish the person <laughs> slash fish the artist presenting this situation now versus the fish that we saw, say, in Fugazi. It manifests how much more mature as a person he is. It doesn't make the personal tragedy any less or less painful. But I think it, it would appear, and I'm, I'm obviously projecting into and reading into this, but it, you know, it seems that fish has a much more mature understanding of this and it's because remember back you know back in in marillion era fish when fish was extremely caustic it was never fish's fault there was always a but in there and he's he's got a much more balanced understanding of the whole situation at this point that i find to be very appealing and very palatable honestly and that takes us to Dancing in Fog. Now, Dancing in Fog, I absolutely unabashedly love this song. Apparently, this song was directly inspired by a scene in Fellini's uh, Amarcord, which I haven't had the chance to watch. And I I hope to at some point, but, but just to be perfectly frank, I have not. Apparently, there is a scene in that movie where there are a bunch of young men 
who are literally in a fog and imagine that they're dancing with with women who apparently aren't there mm. and and in the context of of things that were going on in fish's life at this point it kind of became um a manifestation of illicit affairs and things of that nature and i think that the two things kind of weave together quite perfectly i think the lyrics are exceptionally powerful and i would actually like to read a lot of them and i think that they they marry extremely well with the sort of dreamy music here um it's 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 a really good sort of combination if you will so if if we go to the lyrics all that you left behind in this empty room was a question for which the answer was due. If I admit to the truth, I admit to the lie. One bottle, one glass, a crisp Chardonnay. Outside in the park, the maples ablaze. The ghosts from the hill whisper your name. Think about when we talked in Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors. Mm. Fish was obsessed with this idea of the hill. Yeah. And so here again, we have the ghost from the hill whisper your name. He's he's calling back to his own younger perception of the world, I think. Where no one can see and no one can hear and no one's aware of the passion we feel. They all disappear when we're fog dancing. I heard you laugh. I turned around to face someone else I once knew I once found. Someone I've loved, someone I've lost in fog. So, you know, now he's he's juxtaposing, right? He's got this new woman that he's in love with. He's got the old woman that he was in love with. And, you know, this fog is getting in the way of things. And, and this is an interesting digression. When I listen to the, to the recording, the next line, Fish sings, the message was clear, the picture was clear. But the written lyrics say the message was lost, the picture was clear, mm. which I, mm. is probably what he intended. I'm, you know, but again, I think it goes back to sort of lack of editing and, and, and production and saying, um, I didn't sing that right. I should probably go re-record it. Right. So anyway, the message was lost. The picture was clear. I followed your call till no one was near. Now I'm left in the dark while you're fog dancing. I drift through the days that fade into gray. The picture dissolves when you enter the frame. I follow your trail. I follow desire. The cry of the dog, the howl of the world, and somewhere above there's a crow in the clouds laughing away while we're fog dancing. I drift through the days that fade into gray. The picture dissolves when you enter the frame. I followed your trail. I followed you fog dancing. Where no one can see and no one can hear and no one's aware of the passion we feel, they all disappear when we're fog dancing. I heard your laugh. I turned around to face someone else I once knew I once found, someone I'd loved, someone I'd lost in a fog, lost in fog, lost in fog, lost in fog. Three times we've got a mantra, mantra. I'm <laughs> lost nice. in fog. So, you know, I just... Yeah, I I just I absolutely love the the lyrical construct there. I think it 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 if to for me he's able to present so many different aspects of 
of the situation that he was going through and sort of utilizing the inspiration of this scene in the fog and and how you know the limited visibility and losing touch and and reconnecting and and all of that kind of goes around um is i just i think it's absolutely is you know i, I I'm not going to say brilliant, but I, I think it's really, really well done. And, you know, then at the end of it, they add a little bit of trumpet in there, which I think is an outstanding touch, or at least it sounds like trumpet. It could be John Young on the on the keys. But it Yeah, does, I looked it up. I couldn't find an actual horn. Yeah, but, I, yeah. I, I couldn't either, but it sounds it sounds pretty good. And and it gives it, it with with the sort of the electronic beat and, and the trumpet, it gives it a definite pet shop vibe in my brain, which is cool. I'm definitely down cool. with that. So I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of of dancing in fog. That's cool. I can't add anything to that other than I love the auxiliary percussion. Very often when this song, if I'm in the middle of my workout, I'll walk walk over to my Dejembe drum and I'll just uh, <laughs> bang away for a couple of minutes. Actually reminds me of the the exotic feeding. Yeah. Song. Uh, I want to say no title or untitled. I can't remember what the name of that. It's something about having no title, um, but yeah, it's um, that's cool. Mm. It's too bad Tom should put his uh, exotic feeding up on Bandcamp. He could could make a killing during our fish episodes when he's not preoccupied scouting movies in the Joshua Tree Desert. Big, big movie guy, or uh, yeah. or no. getting ready to jet off to Switzerland. Yeah, nominated for big awards. Nominated for Emmys. He's, uh, you know, you know, he's a superstar. He's, he's getting a little mm-hmm. too big mm-hmm. for the palaver, I think. He he's gonna Uh-oh. he's gonna be a guest now in the palaver. <laughs> We're gonna have to start paying him. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes us into obligatory ballad. Now this is this is the place where the constantly running movie noise is very distracting because there's. Nothing else going on here. This song, quite frankly, is not my favorite. This is the one area where the guitar tone, I think, is just unendurable. Maybe because there's nothing else going on. Um, it, it's just, it's it's grating to a point that I can't stand it. Then when you throw in the movie projector noise underneath, it's terrible. And the constant repetition of the word obligatory just makes me want to punch myself in the head. So this this is this is not uh, this you know if if I had to shorten this record, this would come off without even a second thought. I, yeah. I didn't realize until like ninety minutes ago that this was one of the darker songs about the divorce or the separation. Yeah. Um. Um. Uh. You know what? I I I, I like Paul. I take it in. I hear the guitar sound, and then I just flip in my brain to where <laughs> I'm. I'm just cueing in on other musical things. Um, so I'm going to pretend I never read the lyrics. Okay. I'm going to pretend the guitar sound is something other than what it is, and I'm going to continue to enjoy it because when I was, you know, doing my palaver homework, I, I, I really enjoyed it up until 90 minutes ago. Uh, it's so rare that a flavor actually ruins a song for me. <laughs> that is unusual. I, uh, for whatever reason, this guitar riff reminds me a lot of uh, Nuno Betancourt in Extreme. Interesting. And and 
and I really, you, you know, your your point on the guitar sound is so spot on, Joe. It's just so like you just want. It's like you can hear this the sound they were going for, and it's just not this. Like he, you know, it's plugged into some nasty device that's <laughs> that's just over driven in so many different ways. And like all you want to do is hear this guitar through like you know, like a hundred watt amp turned up to eight mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. nine or ten or as you just want to hear it fucking loud on just on the barely edge of breakup. And like that's not what that's not this. And it's it's, it's disappointing. I like the Beatles. There's like some Beatles kind of keyboards going on in, in part of it, which I think is a cool contrast. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. The I like the concept of uh, obligatory and obligation, but it's just just like the guitar tones. It's just kind of delivered over the top. And um, yeah, so I'm with you. Which takes us to the Pilgrim's Address. Now, in, in the extended liner notes, Fish relates some very interesting stories about, you know, I guess, touring with a group of musicians in various places to entertain troops stationed in in various places. Some of those, you know, a little bit more hostile than others. And, And so through this experience, you know, Fish had interaction with these soldiers and wanted to write a song for soldiers, which I 100% respect. And there was a very fascinating um, tale that he tells. One of these shows was in Kosovo, and there was, I guess, some sort of attempted murder in the hotel, in the lobby of the hotel he was staying at. And then oh he, he wound mm. up, you know, going out to a pub or something and getting drunk and almost got into the wrong car and some... Some soldiers saw him and said, that's not a taxi, mate. And then they drove him back to the hotel. And so, you know, there was there was some connection that that fish um, established, you know, with with the soldiers that he met through these 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 gigs. And so I think, you know, this manifests itself in the pilgrim's address in a very genuine manner which i think is pretty easy to to feel and i think the lyrics come across as pretty powerful and and i think he did them very very well the obviously the you know and this is a a case where you know you got this the organ is in the choruses and it's just huge Mm. And, and and here again maybe just because it's not john wesley being huge that you're like oh that's kind of fresh but it, it does come across, um, I, I think, as powerfully as the lyrics. I like it in, I want to say, and for lack of a better phrase, we'll call it probably like the second and third verse or whatever, where he's got sort of the, the spoken word singing echo thing going yeah. on. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's good that it, it doesn't happen in the first verse, because I think that would be kind of like almost too gimmicky. Um, but it... it it does seem effective in the way he uses it. And it's interesting that the spoken word comes first and then the singing comes after. Yeah. Um, and, and they do a pretty good job of sort of lining those things up versus each other. So you can follow them. Um, I just, I think that's very, very cool. But you know, on, on the, on the con side, this is my address. 
is not Fish's most powerful mantra he's ever created. Um, you know, it's no <laughs> Uzi's on a street corner, <laughs> but, but, you know, o- overall, you know, I, I, I have to respect this song for, for what it is. It's, it's a little off topic with the rest of the album. And that's why I kind of struggle with it a little bit. Ken, recently you have, uh, and was it on our last episode? I don't even remember. Um, you know, you made the comment that, oh, it was when we talked to Joe Bailey, that we have the ability to sometimes revel in in dark and unpleasant things. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I am reveling in those dark and unpleasant things on this record. And while I'm not going to say that the Pilgrim's Address is sunshiny, it's, it, it does have a very strong and poignant message. It is, it's on a different track than the rest of the songs on this record. Is the word address used in the capacity similar to public address? Mr. President, this is my address. Meaning this, 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 this is what I need to express to you and to the rest of my that, citizens. That's how I take it. It's the, uh, yeah. it's the, yeah. The okay. Pilgrim's address. It's just that I guess, you know, depending on where you're from, you can call it your address. Mm-hmm. For me, mm-hmm. an address mm-hmm. is the place where you live. The address is what you speak about. Potato, 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 potato. I, I, I think he's probably playing with the with the meanings. Would be my guess. Yeah, in one ear, out the other. When I was jogging, I, I've in my mind, I've sort of contrasted this song with uh, Market Square Heroes. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, different, obviously different songs, different groups, different times. But to me, this is just such a more mature and controlled approach to getting his point across. Uh, people might disagree with that. I, I, I think this is just a huge highlight for me. And, and this tune builds like, it builds like a seven minute anthem should, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, I find it very satisfying. And it, it's such a relief after listening to obligatory ballad to just hear like a simple acoustic guitar playing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's certainly a welcome change. And then we've got the coup de gras. Clock moves sideways. So here again, if So Fellini was Fish writing about his affair while married. Clock Moves Sideways is Fish writing about the dissolution of his marriage, again, in real time, as it's happening. It's, you know, in the middle of all of this, he's breaking up with his wife. He describes a very unhappy Christmas where the two of them, well, the three of them with their daughter, Tara, were together in the house, and it was just unpleasant for everybody. Uh, Some of us here on the Palaver have been through the dissolution of a marriage and understand what what those holidays are like and how unpleasant they are. The fact that he was able to to turn it into a song literally, you know, while it's happening is absolutely amazing to me 
In the liner notes, he does mention that Clock Moves Sideways is a song that he finds it difficult to perform live because of, mm. you know, the the memories and feelings that it conjures up in him because it was so close to, you know, the actual events. And, and, and I alluded to this a couple of tracks ago. I, I think in terms of a, of a breakup song, this really showcases how much more mature Fish is compared to Fugazi. And, and he himself brings up Fugazi in this song. So I think it's very legitimate mm-hmm. to, to draw that comparison. And whereas Fugazi was just anger and vitriol, this there's anger here and there's pain here. It's very raw. The emotions are, are very present. But there's a certain amount of regret that has previously been absent in these types of song for fish. And again, I, I, I really sort of, it allows me to connect with this um, even more. I do think, and Paul, I'll be curious to see if you agree with this. I do think this is probably the one time on the record that I think the guitar tone is actually perfect. I think it's, I, 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 I do agree. I do agree. And I love the doubled acoustic during the, the chorus parts. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And, you know, so there's, uh, yeah, so the, the big line in there, right. Um, at the, at the end of, of at least the, the first verse, there's a spark in your eyes. When she calls, you'll explode and she's blaming it all on crossed wires and bam, right. The, the shit comes down. Mm. And and then when he goes into um, on on the choruses, when the clock moves sideways, when the clock moves sideways, and then he goes into Fellini days, right? And so you've mm. got all of these things going on. You've got the clock moving sideways because presumably it's it's the metaphor for you know all the unhappiness and everything else. But at the end of that, you've got these Fellini days that pop up that sort of you know, give you a ray of hope or give you a means of escape from, from the rest of this. I, when we talked about the, uh, the quote from the wikis, the, the guy used the, the phrase claustrophobic. I think this song feels claustrophobic, how it feels at the end of a relationship like that. When you're stuck there, when you're in the house at Christmas and you can't get away from each other and that's all you want to do. It, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's amazing. Um, so, Paul, you talked about the, the double acoustic on the breakdown. I have a note about that as well. Um, and then when they come out of that and they build it back up with the tick-tock, 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 which is it evokes clocks, which is the sort of general metaphor that we're using. Very, very cool. But he's able to sort of build that vocal delivery until you get, you know, back into it. And then, you know, the second time we get into the, the chorus, I'm sorry, the third time we get into the chorus is when he goes from when the clock moves sideways into Fellini days, and then he brings up Fugazi. Yeah. And, and you know, the first time you hear it, you're like, did he say Fugazi? <laughs> and then he's got the next line, don't answer the phone. And then he says Fugazi again, and you're like, it just feels right to me mm. because it again it it 
and as I'm sitting here thinking about it, it's almost like he's invoking that sort of that anger part, but rather than just spitting it all out, he's just saying, please refer to previous work. Um, mm. You know, and and, mm, mm, and, and, mm, and, mm. and and he's sort of expressing, you know, all of these things and, and coming across in, in one word. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. And then what really gets me, and I hadn't caught it until I, I sat down and, and looked at the lyrics. Um, he, he brings up the old Lang sign, which is unusual, right? That's, isn't that the... Isn't that the New Year's song? What the hell? So, of course, you have to look it up. For Old Lang Syne roughly um, translates to for days gone by. So he is, you know, this is the end of it. And and there, this part of it to me, again, is that, that portion of regret of what they're no longer going to have, which, again, we have not seen that level of sort of awareness previously and you know we do get Fellini days repeated three times at the end of the song which qualifies us as a mantra and I think <laughs> in this you know again understanding what fish means when he says Fellini days to me it made it much more powerful to understand how that is and I think you know we could argue about the the movie projector sounds but I think having it start with the movie projector sounds and having this song sort of fade away into that with the with the outgoing mantra of Fellini days for me I think it's absolutely perfect I think it's a brilliant way to finish this record I agree I like the darkness that that it leaves you with okay I guess I overwhelmed everyone <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, you know, this this is this is the surprising fish solo clutching at straws experience for me. Um and, and I feel bad that I'm reveling in this terrible time that Fish had in his life, but I'm amazed that he was able to translate it into music that is for me so enjoyable. I, I think it's you know, that, and again, that level of understanding sort of pushed me over the top and made me truly appreciate this. And I just, I, I, I'm a weird and disturbed person, but I, I absolutely love albums like this. But I mean, that's, you know, that's how Robert Smith made his freaking career. So, it mm, 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 mm. won me over. I'm sticking with the word strained and strained masterpiece. I like it. I would have I would have loved it to simmer more. It's not instant soup. And but it's not the slow cook. It's kind of the medium range. But could you imagine if this would have had twice as long to simmer with mm. the flavors oozing and a little bit more keyboards and a better guitar sounds? Oh my god. Yeah, I, I you know, I I think that is a very very valid point, Ken. I think I think this record could have been spectacular as opposed to really, really good. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I'm just going to throw this out there. You know, um, during the pandemic, you know, there were so many people online offering this advice, that advice, this course, that course. You, you can do mixing, you can do mastering, you can do beats, you can do anything you want. 
And um, one consistent theme that folks wanted to, to sell me on was capture the magic. Go right up into the point of the magic, but don't kill your mix. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe this whole record is, is an example of that. You know, I talk about letting it slow cook and, and, and creating something beautiful, you know, the next dark side of the moon, whatever. But there's also just put it together and see what it looks like. And when it's exciting, release it. You know, they used to say U2 albums were never completed. They were just released. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so many different sides to the argument. I think that's, that's a, that's a cool point, Ken, because in my early listenings to this and my just like troubles with the guitar tones, you know, I'm listening to it with the, with the demos on this, you know, disc two available to me. Right. And I, and I thought, well, let me listen to the demos. Let's hear how they started and how, you know, where it went wrong. And, and like the demos are like really similar to, to the <laughs> final product. So, yeah, they are. so, you know, and, and, and that made me go back to the like final mix and say, okay, this is really, it's not like, this got fucked up somewhere. Like this is really what they meant to do. And it helped it it sort of helped me think about that. But but you're right. There is something about saying, hey, you know what? This is getting the point across. Let's just stick with this. Let's not try to refine it too much. Um because you can certainly refine something beyond its pinnacle. So maybe maybe it's uh it's where it belongs. Joe, is that a castle behind you? Uh, yes, it, it is. Sorry, it's been distracting me all all palaver. <laughs> it is the uh, the Lego Disney Castle. It, it looks like the Disney Castle. Nice. It's, okay, it, it's Good a stuff. it's a spectacular set. But so yeah, Fellini Days was a complete and utter surprise to me, and I'm so happy um, that it was. You know, it's it's great when when you come across something like this because again after. After sunsets and and then rain gods, I thought there's there's no way because I knew I I've listened to Field of Crows, I've listened to Thirteen Star a little bit. Um, I'm still you know not hundred percent sold on Velchmerts. Uh, I know Tom loves a Feast of Consequences, so I, I didn't have a lot of of high hopes for maybe the back end of the fish catalog and to find something that i connected with so well was like i said just it was it was such an unexpected surprise and i'm i'm very grateful for that and it's going to it's going to make the next fish episode all the more interesting the only thing that has made me happier than finding out what a great album rain gods and zippos is is finding out what a great album fellini days has been and of course kicking myself that i didn't go ahead and just order fellini days from fish um i'm gonna probably order another deluxe edition but i am a little disappointed that my my uh my um expectations for field of crows have already been quite low joe (laughs) thanks I'm sorry. I should. I should not. I should not have influenced you in uh, in any way, shape, or form. I, I was thinking, man, can he do it four times? Can he go four in a row? But uh, it doesn't sound like he's gonna. So. I, I have. I, I can't. I honestly, I can't wait for the you know the the Field of Crows episode simply because I have a 
a tagline that I've been waiting to share with everyone about Field of Crows. Wow. Mm. But, mm. Um, yeah, so uh, related, unrelated, I just yesterday sent Fish another big honking chunk of cash to uh, to order some more remasters. Uh, simply so I could have the the extended liner notes, even for albums that we've already covered. But I'm like, yeah, I, oh, wow. I just I need to I need to have these because I want to know more about this. <laughs> that's that's what I'm doing every time we every every like every Tuesday night or Wednesday morning in the wee hours. I'm like online ordering stuff from the Fish website. So hopefully hopefully we can do our part to uh, to keep Fish afloat. But anyway, Fellini days. You know, absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if you guys have any sort of closing thoughts on that, but I'm, I'm kind of done gushing at this point. Oh, I was just going to pick it. Paul's prepositions. It's, it's rain gods with Zippos, oh. N- not, not rain gods and Zippos. Oh, uh, so, sorry. So, Thank you. So, so they are in possession of the Zippos. They have arrived. We are in possession. That's right. It changes the meaning of the idea. You're right. <laughs> it's not there with them. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, All right. <laughs> I haven't even I haven't even looked at our spreadsheet. I don't know if Field of Crows is the next episode or if Peter Gabriel's Up is oh is the the next episode. I think it might be Peter Gabriel Up. So we can switch back. I think we do Peter Gabriel Up, and then we do Field of Crows thirteen star. Then we switch back to Gabriel for New Blood, and then we finish out with A Feast of Consequences and Weltschmerz. So, um, we may have a little bit of Peter Gabriel before we we get to the Field of Crows, which will be fun in its own right. But anyway, be that as it may, whatever it is we're going to talk about next episode will be fun and enjoyable, and I certainly enjoyed the conversation with you gentlemen this evening. So, thanks for your time as always. Likewise. Thank you. you've enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and questions you can reach us on facebook instagram or twitter we are at prog paula on all of those or search for progressive palaver you're welcome to email us our email address is prog paula that's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>